0: This is VOA News. Via remote, I'm Tommy McNeil. Ukrainian and British officials warned Saturday that Russian forces are relying on weapons able to cause mass casualties as they try to make headway in capturing eastern Ukraine and fierce prolonged fighting depletes resources on both sides. Russian bombers have likely been launching heavy 1960s-era anti-ship missiles in Ukraine. That's according to the UK Defense Ministry. The KH-22 missiles were primarily designed to destroy aircraft carriers using a nuclear warhead. When used in ground attacks with conventional warheads, they are highly inaccurate and therefore can cause collateral damage and casualties, according to the ministry. Both sides have expended large amounts of weaponry in what has become a grinding war of attrition for the eastern region of coal mines and factories known as the Dunbas, placing huge strains on their resources and stockpiles. Russia is likely using 5.5-ton anti-ship missiles because it is running short of more precise modern missiles, according to the British. Ministry. It gave no details of where exactly such missiles are thought to have been deployed. The family of a British man condemned to death for fighting for Ukraine it says it's devastated by the outcome of what it termed a show trial and called for him to be released. A court in the Separatist Proclaimed Donetsk People's Republic of Ukraine convicted two British fighters and one Moroccan on Thursday of seeking the violent overthrow of power an offense punishable by death in the Eastern Territory. The men were also convicted of mercenary activities and terrorism. In a statement issued Saturday, the family of the British citizen Sean Pinner said that the 48-year-old has lived in Ukraine for four years as a Ukrainian wife and served as a Marine with Ukraine's 36th Brigade. There is more at VOANews.com. Again, VOANews.com. This is VOANews. China's defense minister accused the United States on Sunday of trying to hijack the support of countries in the Asia-Pacific region to turn them against Beijing, saying Washington is seeking to advance its own interests under the guise of multilateralism. The defense minister, General Wei Fengi lashed out at the U.S. Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, rejecting his smearing accusation the day before at the Shangri-La Dialogue that China was causing instability with its claim to the self-governing island of Taiwan and its destabilizing military activity in the area. Austin had stressed the need for multilateral partnership with non-nations, or I should say with nations, in the Indo-Pacific which uh, Wei suggested was an attempt to back China into a corner. Thousands of people rallied on the National Mall in D.C. across the U.S. today in a renewed push for gun control measures. We get more from AP correspondent Julie Walker.
1: David Hogg, March for Our Lives co-founder and Parkland school shooting survivor, told the crowd the Uvalde Elementary school shooting should be a rallying call. If our government can't do anything to
0: stop 19... kids from being killed and slaughtered in their own school and decapitated it's time
2: to change who is in government
1: on the tarmac in california president biden said the message has to get to congress look this has to become an election issue in new york mayor adams led activists chanting end gun violence across the brooklyn bridge I'm Julie Walker.
0: Venezuelan leader Nicolas Maduro and Iran's hardline president have signed a 20-year cooperation agreement in Tehran.
1: In the nation's capital, organizers estimated that 40,000 people assembled at the National Mall. The rallies were organized by March for Our Lives, a gun safety group founded by student survivors
0: The leader of the uh, U.S.-backed opposition in Venezuela has been physically attacked during a visit to a rural community. That's according to members of his parallel government who on Saturday accused a group of ruling party associates of carrying out the attack. A photo accompanied the statement from the opposition shows that Juan Guaido was being attacked or held back as people gathered around him and someone rips his shirt off. The parallel government said that the group of associated of the United Socialist Party of Venezuela hit and insulted Guaido. He tweeted that he planned to make a statement on social media Saturday night. Recapping our top story, Ukrainian and British officials warned that the Russian forces are relying on weapons able to cause mass casualties as they try to make headway in capturing eastern Euro- Ukraine in fierce, uh, prolonged fighting. Via I'm Tommy McNeil, VOA News.
2: This is Encounter on VOA. Here's Carol Castillo welcome to encounter on the voice of america on this latin american edition of the program the united states hosts the ninth summit of the americas and while i'm not in los angeles where the event is taking place i will be speaking with our veteran latin american experts eric farnsworth of the council of the americas and america society and cindy arnson former longtime director of the latin american program at the woodrow wilson center who have been on the scene in la and who will give us a bird's eye view of developments and outcomes. Washington hosted the very first Summit of the Americas in 1994 in Miami, Florida, at a very different political and economic juncture. Eric Farnsworth was there, and notes in an article for America's Quarterly that then-President Bill Clinton was fresh from congressional victories on NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement, which was recently upgraded and dubbed USMCA. He had a strong domestic mandate to pursue a hemisphere-wide trade agenda, a number of fledgling democracies attended, like Chile, which had thrown off the yoke of Augusto Pinochet, and Haiti, which had replaced the dictator Raul Cedras. There was only one no-show, Cuba. 27 years later, President Biden is facing a more fraught scenario, both domestically and regionally. Here's a key part of the message in his remarks to the hemispheric gathering in Los Angeles.
3: At this summit, we have an opportunity for us to come together around some bold ideas, ambitious actions, and to demonstrate to our people the incredible power of democracies to deliver concrete benefits and make life better for everyone, everyone.
2: President Biden addressing the Ninth Summit of the Americas in Los Angeles on Wednesday. Several presidents decided to skip the summit to protest Washington's exclusion of the authoritarian regimes of Cuba, Venezuela, and Nicaragua. The leaders of Mexico, Guatemala, and Honduras skipped the talks. The Biden administration explained that it did not want to invite countries that flout democratic principles. Analysts say the absence of six heads of state casts a shadow over the hemispheric-wide convocation meant to address the difficult issues of economic insecurity, pandemic recovery, climate change, and, of course, migration. Well, we will ask our guests what they are seeing, hearing on the ground, and elicit their assessments of the U.S. attempt to re-engage in a region which is also being courted by China and Russia. Eric Farnsworth is vice president of the Council of the Americas and the Americas Society. And Cindy Arnson, she's former director, now a distinguished fellow at the Latin American program, at the Washington-based Woodrow Wilson Center. Both panelists join me from Los Angeles via Microsoft Teams. Welcome to the program. Thanks so much, Carol. Let me start with Eric Farnsworth. Eric, give us a sense of how the summit is going so far. There were low expectations with six heads of states boycotting started by Mexican President Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador. What are your impressions thus far and how was President Biden's address received?
3: Well, thanks, Carol. I think it's a timely moment in hemispheric relations. Clearly, the Summit of the Americas is an opportunity to really take stock of where we are as a hemisphere. But uh, I have to say that, as you indicated, the low expectations for this summit have largely been met. It's a complicated time coming out of the pandemic with economic recovery not certain in the region and the United States clearly preoccupied with other matters. This has been a moment where I think many people have used the phrase opportunities missed. There will be some momentum coming out of this on the trade side, on the migration side, on the climate change side, and I think that's all to the good. But the initiatives that the summit is launching really have to be fleshed out in terms of what specifically they are supposed to do. And then, and this is the more complicated part even, they have to be implemented. And the implementation is where previous summits have fallen down and where if this one is to be a successful ultimately we have to make sure that implementation goes forward so i think it's an opportunity but at the end of the day probably one data point that people will take a look at and then move on
2: cindy Aronson, let me get your take on how the summit is going and do you think that excluding cuba venezuela and nicaragua was the right call on the part of the biden administration at the end of the day
1: start with your first question, Carol. I think that, as in any summit, there are a lot of speeches, a lot of articulation of grand principles, but the speech by President Biden at the inaugural ceremony on Wednesday evening was, in my view, remarkably short on specifics. And the key, I think, as Eric was mentioning, is going to be in what the follow-up is. He mentioned making supply chains more secure, but he offered no indication of how that would come about. There's out there this concept of nearshoring, which is bringing manufacturing capabilities that currently are located in Asia or in China back to areas closer to U.S. shores so that the supply chain disruptions that the pandemic occasioned are not seen again. There was no use of that word. It's obviously very difficult within the administration because President Biden himself wants to reshore that manufacturing. So there's this tension between bringing jobs to the U.S. versus bringing jobs to the areas such as the Caribbean, northern South America, Colombia, Mexico, Central America that are closer to U.S. shores as opposed to bringing those jobs directly into the united states i don't see a contradiction but a lot of people do similarly there was mention of trade but there are two countries specifically that would like to see a bilateral free trade agreement with the united states notably ecuador also uruguay free trade agreements have to be approved by the u.s congress that is almost impossible to envision. So what the United States is going to be offering in terms of additional trade concessions to countries that need to export and that want to export to the United States and other markets remains unclear. Second question, really briefly. To me, it's been really remarkable to watch how the hemisphere has made the non-invitation to Cuba, Venezuela, and Nicaragua the issue on which they stake their positions vis-a-vis the summit. These are non-democratic countries. It's a statement that on the one hand, everyone should be included in a hemispheric discussion and who is the United States to identify who should and who shouldn't play a part. On the other hand, it shows that the Biden administration, as we saw with the Summit of Democracies in December of 2021, has become the standard bearer of democracy in the hemisphere at a time of tremendous erosion of democratic practices democratic governance throughout the americas and this is something that's very worrisome and that one would hope would be of greater concern to the governments of the region and apparently it's not
2: Back to you, Eric Farnsworth. Let me give you a chance to answer that question with respect to the non-invitation to Cuba, Venezuela, and Nicaragua, and to what extent do you think that overshadowed many aspects of the summit, or do you think it was consistent and right on the part of the administration to do that, to keep this theme of democracy alive and meaningful?
3: I think both of those are true. In other words, uh, it was correct of the Biden administration to do this, and it did overshadow the summit because, as Cindy was saying, some leaders in the region chose to make it the issue that they wanted to really fall on their swords about, which I found very disappointing. This goes back to the first summit, which you referenced in Miami in 1994, which was a time for the democratically elected leaders of the hemisphere to come together, not just to talk about trade issues, but frankly, to celebrate and tried to institutionalize relatively new democratic governance. You have to remember coming out of the 1980s and early 90s, many of Latin American countries were dictatorships. And so democracy was new. And President Clinton uh, wanted the leaders to come together really to put a stamp on the idea that democracy really is the key for going forward for integration and growth and all the things that we want in terms of the agenda that we've been promoting. But that was only an initiative. Later on, it was actually institutionalized on September 11, 2001, in the form of the Inter-American Democratic Charter, which explicitly States, that nations that are not led by democratically elected leaders are ineligible to participate in summits of the Americas. So, this is something that all the hemispheric leaders actually signed on to, with the exception of Cuba. And so, they themselves have set this standard that the Biden administration is upholding. And I applaud the Biden administration for doing it. They've taken a lot of political heat for doing so. It hasn't been easy. And they've lost some important attendees over this stance that they've taken. But the truth of the matter is, if you don't have a standard in terms of who can participate then at the end of the day what does the summit of the Americas stand for and that to me is the key if we want to stand for democracy in the western hemisphere it's got to mean something there are other fora to talk to non-democratic leaders if that's what we choose to do but the summit of the americas has always been from the beginning a forum for democratic leaders it's in its dna and i for one hope that it continues
2: we'll have more in just a moment but first you're listening to encounter on the voice of america I'm Carol Castiel. My guests are Eric Farnsworth, Vice President of the Council of the Americas and the Americas Society, from whom you just heard, and Cindy Arnson, former Director of the Woodrow Wilson Center's Latin American Program, now Distinguished Fellow. They both join me via Microsoft Teams from Los Angeles. We are discussing... The highlights of the ninth summit of the americas held in la last week this is a reminder that our encounter podcast is available on most of your favorite podcast apps you can also download the show at voaafrica.com slash encounter you may also follow us on twitter and connect with us on facebook at carol castiel voa here's a shout out to a very loyal listener Abraham K. Sharif from Liberia. If you want to hear your name and home country on the air, please like us and leave a comment on our Facebook page. Well, back to our show. And I'm going to start with you again very briefly, Eric Farnsworth. Look, some of the main topics and themes, two of which are migration and economic development. I wonder if you could address Vice President Kamala Harris's announcement that $3.2 billion in private sector investment in Central America has been raised and that that's part of an effort to improve the economy and of course address the large-scale migration out of the region how do you assess that contribution is that making a dent in both the economic and political issues as well as migration issues
3: The issues in Central America are clearly complicated. They're longstanding. And I applaud the vice president for leading an effort to try to bring attention and also real resources to the region. But having said that, there is a real question as to whether this is going to make much of an impact on the root causes of conflict and difficulty and economic duress in Central America. The headline number that was announced is a very attention-grabbing number. If you look behind it, it is a mixture of some pre-existing commitments, some new money. But a lot of it has to do with sourcing arrangements and financial issues, which make a lot of sense from a private sector and financial perspective. But I think there's an open question as to how many good jobs in the formal economy will be created by some of these economic efforts. So we have to look at it from that perspective. If the idea is to try to create meaningful work in the formal economy in Central America with the idea of reducing the effort to migrate to the United States, then we have to evaluate economic activity based on how many good jobs it will create. And I think that's an open question. So we'll have to see that going forward. I would say one other thing, though, and that is that you're dealing with some very big issues here. The United States is a growing economy, clearly recovering effectively coming out of the COVID pandemic. Central American economies really aren't. So there is a real pull for factor in terms of migration of folks who want to come to the United States for work. And there are also push factors as well coming out of Central America in terms of deteriorating social conditions and difficult security environments and lack of work and all kinds of things. So if you put those together, those are trend lines that are really difficult to reverse. And I think the vice president's effort is well-meaning, but it's going to take an awful lot more over a much longer period of time to really try to address these very difficult issues.
2: Turning to you, Cindy Arnsen, Eric Farnsworth said that the vice president's efforts are well-meaning, but it's going to take a long time to address the root causes of migration from the so-called Northern Triangle, Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador. So how would you assess the strategy, this particular tranche of money? To what extent it's really going to address root causes? Is it having an impact? She's been doing this now for the better part of two years.
1: Well, I think the amount of investment itself is pretty head-turning. As you've mentioned, the amount that was announced at the summit includes some new money, but some money that had already been committed by U.S. Companies, But nonetheless, it's a significant amount of investment for small economies. What is, I think, notable to me is that the three heads of state that are slated to benefit from this, Nayib Bukele in El Salvador, Sayomarda Castro in Honduras, and, uh, and Jamate in Guatemala, have boycotted the summit. So the difficulty that the Biden administration has, has a lot to do with the governments that are in place. And mobilizing the resources of the private sector in partnership with the private sector in Central America, I think is a big contribution, given that the governments themselves are not offering a lot of help in terms of defining and implementing this root causes strategy. So we all know that it's going to take a long time, but let's also be honest, it's already been in place since about 2014, when the Obama administration, with Joe Biden as vice president, saw the first surge of unaccompanied minors across the southern U.S. border. So it takes a lot of buy-in from the governments, from the civil society, from the local private sectors to make these kinds of things work. Nonetheless, I mean, I think the mobilization of private sector resources is impressive. And the main question that I have is what's going to be happening for the rest of the hemisphere? And there's a big part of U.S. policy towards the region, both in the Congress and in the administration, that seems to be defined in terms of competing with China and not only the trade that countries have with China, but the investment in infrastructure, the loans, etc. So what is it that the United States is really going to be offering to countries beyond Mexico and Central America? And that's where I think so far we haven't seen a lot of dynamism. Now, the health initiative that we haven't mentioned up until now, I think is important. There are plans to... Partner with the region over the next five to eight years to train half a million healthcare workers and improve public health systems, I think that that's something that if it is implemented could have a long-term impact. And we saw that the COVID pandemic laid bare all the deficiencies of these healthcare systems, not only in providing relief for COVID, but just in terms of providing basic health care to populations that need it. So that's another initiative. But the big picture, you know, what is the United States able to offer through the Development Finance Corporation in partnership with the Inter-American Development Bank, the World Bank, the Latin American Development Bank, known by its initials CAF. What in partnership can the United States offer to the region to help governments, to help societies recover? And that recovery is going to be a key piece of the future of democratic governance. So I think the United States has a tremendous interest in seeing that recovery advance and be inclusive and overcome the inequities that we know are so profound in the region
2: to you, Eric Farnsworth. Cindy Arnson made the connection between economic recovery and democracy. And as you well know, democracies need to deliver in order to be sustainable. So that's definitely an important component. I'd like you to also address the health initiative that Cindy underscored. About 500,000, a half a million, as Cindy said, public health and medical officials will be trained in the region over the next five years to help strengthen health systems throughout the hemisphere. This is in part of course in reaction to the COVID pandemic and the fact that the United States was a bit slow on the uptick with respect to providing vaccines to the region. How do you assess all of that?
3: The good initiative, something that's needed for sure. I question why it's taken us this long to do this and why does it take a summit? I mean, this is something that frankly I think we should have been doing for a long time. But making an announcement about it and trying to implement it over five years I think is appropriate, sure. But there are some huge issues here on the healthcare side more broadly that I don't think this is going to begin to address. The healthcare systems across Latin America for the most part are deeply inadequate. If you're wealthy, you have access to all the care that you need. But if you're not wealthy, you generally don't. And that's a problem. It does have political implications and has been exploited by countries and leaders uh, who do not share the interests of the United States. In addition to being social issues, which are fundamental, there are also economic issues. Let me give you a specific example. Parts of Latin America particularly 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 the Caribbean, rely on tourism for services exports and for obtaining hard currency to drive their economies. The COVID pandemic has devastated the tourism industry, which is only slowly beginning to recover and is not going to recover fully until and unless the region can show that it's really eradicated the COVID pandemic because casual tourists coming from other places are just not going to put their own health at risk. And this is something that is going to have to be addressed. It's a health issue, but it has incredibly important economic implications. So clearly, things that can be done in that manner, whether it's the training of doctors and nurses and such things, or improving healthcare systems, or working to help finance medical equipment and pharmaceuticals that are required for vaccinations and such things. I mean, it's a huge agenda. I'm really glad that at least at this summit, people are talking about it and that there do seem to be some concrete initiatives coming out of it.
2: Cindy Ornson, I'd like to give you both a chance to talk about any meetings you've had with your counterpart in the region, feedback. I'd
1: like to start with that, Carol, and just talk about two events that the Wilson Center was privileged to co-sponsor with other partners on the margins of the summit. And a lot of times, as we know at these big conferences, A lot of really interesting things take place informally outside of these formal plenary sessions. One was a conference on Venezuelan migration to Colombia and Ecuador and the needs for labor integration when we had a number of senior officials from both governments, President Duque of Colombia remotely and President Guillermo Lasso of Ecuador in person, talking about the extraordinary initiatives of those two governments to give regular status to Venezuelan migrants on the theory that migration is a net benefit for their societies. It may be a temporary cost in terms of providing immediate humanitarian assistance but over the medium and long term immigrants are a boon to the economy and it's just head-turning really to hear this kind of message coming from two basically center-right heads of state in latin america as opposed to the dialogue over immigration in this country and Certainly the discourse that we heard coming from the White House during the Trump years. On the other hand, a meeting on June 8th held in conjunction with UCLA and the Carter Center and the Community of Democracies featured among other important people, not only former president of Costa Rica, Laura Chinchilla, but also current president of Chile, Gabriel Boric. What an impressive figure, someone who firmly embraces democratic norms, democratic values, the values of participation, and the heroism of what came before in terms of the struggle to transition from dictatorship to democracy in Chile. And at the same time, a recognition that certain gaps in equality and certain gaps in participation had not been met. And that is what the protest movement was about. And that's where he comes from as a student leader. Anyway, he's just an enormously impressive figure. And if he can be successful... In moving Chile towards a more inclusive, free market, democratic country, it will be, I think, not just a boon to Chile, but an example for the whole region.
2: Turning to you, Eric Farnsworth, first, Cindy Arnson spoke about how both Ecuador and Colombia are looking at migration from Venezuela as potentially a boon to their economy how immigrants actually help the economy. That's a quaint idea, I guess, here in the United States. But if you would like to talk about any meetings on the margins that you'd like to discuss.
3: I think that the main impression that I've had coming out of the summit in terms of the corridor chatter, the meetings we've been having with private sector leaders, is just a fundamental feeling of an opportunity that's missed. So many people want to talk about Nicolas Maduro, who's under indictment by the United States Department of Justice. And you have leaders from the region spending their political Capitol arguing that he should have been invited to the summit, rather than talking in a meaningful way about ways that we can really cooperate to meet some very significant and substantial needs of their own people. And that's been very disappointing, but it has been noted multiple times and continuously by people lamenting that this should be a moment to really try to manage some very difficult issues, and it's turned into something different. On the migration side, it's not just the United States that's grappling with these issues, as Cindy's indicated. Venezuela's collapse has engendered the worst humanitarian crisis in the modern history of Latin America. Over 20% of Venezuelan's own citizens are now outside of the country. Many of those refugees in neighboring Colombia, Ecuador, Brazil, Chile, Peru, etc. many in some of the Caribbean islands. And none of these countries have the real capacity to absorb migrant flows of that magnitude. So yes, there is potential there for sure. But that's long-term integration, and in the meantime, it's having very complicating political implications, as we're seeing in terms of elections that are being run right now, for example, in Colombia and Brazil and elsewhere. So these are issues that have political implications that, if they're not managed effectively, are going to change the political dynamic across the region in, perhaps, ways that we can't yet foresee. So this is a moment in time. A Summit of the Americas happens periodically. I think there's going to be a lot of thinking after this summit concludes is, this the right approach? Should we be having meetings based on geography rather than values? Should we be meeting on a certain time frame just because the clock says we should, or should we wait until we actually have meaningful agenda items to discuss? How are we going to manage some very difficult and complicated political divisions in the hemisphere that seem to be getting deeper instead of narrower? So those are some big questions that we'll clearly have to wait for the after action report coming out of Los Angeles. And in the meantime, we'll continue to muddle through and try to manage some complicated hemispheric relations, in a very difficult and unsettled time for the global economy. So stay tuned, Carol, and watch this space. It's going to continue to be interesting.
2: On that note, I'm afraid that's all the time we have on this Latin American edition of Encounter. I'd like to thank my guests who joined us from L.A., Eric Farnsworth, Vice President of the America Society and Council of the Americas, and Cindy Aronson, former longtime director now distinguished fellow at the Latin American program at the Wilson Center. Encounter was produced in Washington with technical assistance from Rick Pantaleo. I'm Carol Kessler. Join me again next week for another encounter on The Voice of America.